Hey, you guys. Uh, welcome back here. So excited to get to be with you again. And I'm really excited because today we are going to be starting a whole new series, one that's going to take us into the next couple of months. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at the life of David. Um, it's it's a study through First and Second Samuel. And those are two books of the Bible out of the Old Testament, but honestly, some of my very favorites in the entire Bible. Uh, the story of David to me is incredible because he is such a complicated and unique guy. And we know more about David than we know about most people in the Bible. In fact, we may have more information on David than we do anybody else because it covers his life as a teenager all the way to his death when he's 70. But what I really love about David is that his life goes through all kinds of circumstances. In, in, in his life and in his journey with God and his relationship with God, we get to see how do you follow God in the midst of good times, hard times, crazy times. I mean, Right now, our lives are still in the midst of this pandemic, which is you know, unprecedented to be in the middle of a pandemic. And yet, individually and as families and as a town, we're in the midst of things that people have gone through for centuries and had to trust God through for centuries. And so I'm really excited that we get to look at him because this guy, David, has so many different fun layers. I mean, we're going to get to see him as what is it like to be the eighth son in a family? Like, that's a trip. Right. What is it like to be a shepherd and have a, like a full time job and you're a kid that's kind of dangerous? What's it like to become a warrior and a fighter and to win in battle and to become a general and and even ultimately eventually become a king? But on top of all of those things, to be a poet and to be a, a musician and a songwriter and the way David pours out his heart and his life before God. We have so much transparency in him that it's a really incredible journey. And so if you have never read the stories of David in First and Second Samuel, I think, honestly, you're going to be in for a fun and exciting treat. And if you have, I hope you learn and see some new things about both him, but especially how we relate to God. Because the great thing about God is he hasn't changed. Even though the covenant may have changed, even though it's no, we're no longer in the Old Testament time, the great part is that there's so much we can still learn about how to relate and how to have a relationship with God through this incredible guy, David. Now, now, if there's one thing that maybe stands out as the one-liner that sort of summarizes who David is, it's a line that God himself says about him. I mean, we wouldn't believe it if it was another person or a human being, but it's a God-sized statement. And one of the crazy things is it's this statement where God says originally to, to Samuel, who was to look for the next king, he says, I'm looking for a man after my own heart. And that's what is really kind of wild about David, that he's a man after God's own heart. Now, the question that we're going to be exploring as we go through the series, like, what does that even mean? Because if you know the story of David, not only is he all those things I mentioned already, but he's also incredibly flawed or very humanly flawed, that he has all the problems that normal people are going to have. He's going to face great temptation. He's going to face and experience incredible failure. He's going to have some really good successes, oh, but he's going to have all the tough, ridiculous times as well. And yet in this, this God is looking for someone, for a person, for an individual, for men and women who will come and follow him with their whole heart or a heart that goes after God's very heart. Now, if we kind of pick up the story of David, there's a little bit of a context I got to set up this morning as we just start this adventure, this journey, because David doesn't show up in First Samuel until about halfway through the book. And, we, and it originally begins with this man, Samuel, who is, uh, he's a prophet, and uh, he's also a priest. And, uh, and for about the last 40 years, this man has been leading the nation of Israel, which, to be honest, isn't really a nation yet. It's actually uh, a bunch of tribes, 12 tribes spread out all over this region, 
and there's no real national sense of identity. In fact, up to this point in time, God has been the king of the nation. It's a theocracy, and he's been running it, and he's got this promise and this covenant to his people, which is if you will obey me and you will be loyal to me and you will worship me, I'm going to bless you like constantly, and everything is going to be good. You're going to have more food than you can eat. You're going to have no more money than you know what to do with. You're going to have security on your borders. There's going to be peace. People are going to be healthy and whole and happy, all of these things. But if you don't follow me, then I'm, I'm going to work against you. And that's what we see happen. If you read the, through the stories of Joshua and Judges, you see this cycle that this nation ends up in because they can't quite bring themselves to just stay loyal and true and faithful to following after God. They're very human, very flawed, just like the rest of us. Samuel steps in and leads Israel for these 40 years, and it comes to this point where, where he's getting older, and the nation comes to him and says, Samuel, you've done a great job, but frankly, we don't see you passing this mantle off to your sons. They're not the same quality. They're not trustworthy like you are. We want a king. We want a human king. We want one like everybody else, like every other country has a king. We just want to be like every other country. We just want to have this simple thing. And so they bring us up to Samuel, which frankly is, you know, Samuel feels a little bit of rejection going on here. He feels a little hurt by this. And, and 1 Samuel 8, 7 just says this. God speaking to Samuel says, look, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me from being their king. And then God's saying, Samuel, this isn't about you. This is actually about me. This is a bigger bummer than just for you. These people are saying, like, we don't want God as our king. We want to have a human king. And so he says, look, this is what they've been doing. They're doing as they have always done. When I took them out of Egypt, they left me and served other gods, and they're doing the same to you. I guess this is just the cycle that's on kind of repeat for these people, that they tend to get stuck. Well, they tend to get stuck just doing and wanting to do what they <laughs> want to do, which is what we all do, right, so often. And now God is simply saying, look, again and again and again, they've been rejecting this very important, significant, and special relationship that I'm trying to establish with them. That Israel as a nation, as a people, is supposed to be different than the rest of the world. It's supposed to stand out because God's their king. It's supposed to be this nation that is incredibly blessed that all the other nations are looking around going like, what's so great about your say? Why is it so good? Why are the, the people so happy? Why is there so much wealth? Why is there so much health going on? Why are all these great things? And they, they want to come and learn about who this incredible God is that's made all this happen. That's what they're supposed to be. That's how they're supposed to be different. But they are rejecting this special relationship with God, and really what they want is just what everybody else has. Now, just pull back to our own lives here for a moment in our own current age. I mean, isn't this just something that is a part of who we are? Don't we all typically just want to fit in? We all kind of want to have what we see everybody else having, what we see as the normal. That's what normal looks like. Everybody follows this path in life. Everybody follows this route, right? Everybody has this kind of an education, right? Everybody has these kind of possessions. Everybody has this kind of look going on here. And we tend as people to want to fit in. That's probably not altogether a bad thing. But they're actually rejecting some specialness of who God made them and, and wanted them to be for just being like all of their neighbors. It was actually the thing God himself didn't want to actually have happen. And, uh, and yet it's part of their wiring. And right now they're facing this place where they're really rejecting it. And God is saying, look, this is a pattern. This has been happening forever. This pattern of, of motion, of leaving God and, and really swapping loyalties, of saying, we don't want to follow this God, the God who led us out of Egypt and our ancestors. We really like these local gods or these local people that our neighbors are following, that they're worshiping. And they are continually, generation to generation, switching loyalties back and forth, sometimes trying to worship both ways, which God isn't having any of. But the point here is really this, not just whether they believe in God, but that their lives, there's a whole pattern and really a direction of faith. 
that they're, they're supposed to be leaning into. Where does God want them to go? How are they supposed to be a nation of people whose hearts are actually in pursuit of God's heart, who are living out God's will and his desire? But right now, they're not finding that. They're not making that happen. And so it leaves God and Samuel having this conversation. And, and God says, look, tell these people what's going to happen if they get a king. Tell how he's going to tax everybody, how it's going to change life, how it's not all going to be all that great and good. But they want a king, so he gets them one. And he goes and he tells sin Samuel to find this guy named Saul. Saul's a young man, but he's really tall. He's kind of a good-looking guy. He stands out literally in a crowd. He's like a head and shoulders above everybody. And he's like, this is going to be your new king. And everybody, for the most part, is like, okay, this is like, he looks like a pretty good king potential guy right here. Saul himself doesn't really want to be king. He doesn't feel like he's king material at all. But Samuel anoints him, which is, which is where they were. he's chosen. He becomes king, and he begins to have success. God puts his Holy Spirit on Saul. And Saul begins to win battles. Saul begins to take on a leadership role. Uh, he begins to have success, and people gather around him and swarm around him and celebrate him and look to him as a deliverer of their country and their nation. And for a while this goes on, but it only takes a couple of chapters in Samuel before Saul starts making some decisions that are not honoring God at all. In fact, there's some fear that's kicking in. There's some worry that's kicking in. And, and when, when he gets scared, he kind of starts to choke, and he starts to make bad decisions and bad calls and doing things that God says he should never do. And this becomes a little bit of a pattern, and it gets to the point where in 1 Samuel 15, God says this, I'm sorry I made Saul king because he has stopped following me and has not obeyed my commands. He's gotten to this place where he's like, you know what, Saul is really never going to come to that point and that place of, of wholeheartedly coming after me. He, he kind of does, he kind of doesn't. He kind of does, he kind of doesn't. It's kind of partially there. He wants some things from me, but he's not really wholeheartedly about me, about knowing me. About, about really discovering who I want him to be as a king, as he leads this country, this nation, these, these people. And I, I just, I love that, that picture, that, that in my mind, anyway, that terminology that comes with the law of motion, you know, that, that, that objects in motion are going to stay in motion unless they're acted upon by an outside force, or objects in rest are going to stay in rest unless acted upon. That, that God's looking for people that are in this motion of like pursuing after God, of going where God wants them to go. But if they're not going in that right direction, they're not moving in that right direction, God's always acting on them to try to get them back into that place. And that's what God is doing with Saul to start with. He keeps sending Samuel to keep correcting and saying, no, don't do that. That was a foolish idea. That was a horrible idea. That was really bad. But change, move, redirect, put your trajectory back into knowing God. I mean, he's got Samuel there to guide him, but it's just not working very well for Saul. But, but here's kind of the reality of life. I mean, how well do any of us handle change, really? I mean, how do you respond to God changing your own direction in life? I mean, when you read some things, maybe even in the New Testament, you read some of the words of Jesus, when you hear him say things like, hey, don't worry about tomorrow. I mean, how, how quickly do we adapt that into the, not just our minds, but into our hearts and our lives and say, all right, I need to take this worry to God. I need to actually make that a part of my life and understand that. How do, how do I take to heart some of his words about forgiveness, about letting go of things, of letting responsibility of other people's sins go, of, of moving forward? How, of being patient, of being kind. I mean, there's these huge, tough commands. It's not easy to do. And so we aren't standing here in accusation against Saul. We're just looking at what happens here because, man, when God wants to change our direction to lead us back to his heart for us, his love for people, his love for all those that he sent his son to die for. That's God's goal, and that's God's point. And so he is continually doing the same work with Saul as the king, but it's not working again and again and again. 
Well, God gives Saul a final mission. He tells him, look, Saul, I've, I've, there's this group of people called the Amalekites. And you can read this in 1 Samuel 15. He says, I want you to go take the army of Israel, and I want you to go, and I want you to fight these guys, and I want you to kill them. I want you actually literally to destroy this group of people. I want you to kill every man, every woman, every child, every animal, farm animal that they have, every domesticated animal. I mean, it's one of those things where even as you listen to that, if you go and you read it in 1 Samuel it's one of those things where it's really hard for a lot of us to understand, like, why would, why would God do this? Is this the same God of the New Testament? Is this the same God that, well, is this Jesus? I mean, how does this work when Jesus doesn't seem like he'd ever say to do anything like this? And there's, there's a, you're right, there's a reason for that. There's a whole different covenant that's going on here. But it's important for us to come to grips with the fact that there's this reality. In fact, in this picture, we're going to see the very justice and even the anger and wrath of God. It's going to be coming at these people called the Amalekites, and it's going to come at them for a reason. But it's, an, it's a great reminder, an important reminder for us to, as we appreciate what Jesus has done for us, because he took all of God's anger, all of God's justice and wrath upon him on the cross. That's where our forgiveness, that's where God's grace to us comes from. But in this moment, God is saying to Saul, Saul, I want you to go and I want you to destroy these people. Now, the background behind this is, goes back to about 400 years, 400 years before Saul. When Israel was coming out of Egypt and God had rescued them and they were coming through the, the desert and they were there for 40 years and they're, they're marching through at this one point in time and there's, the, you know, if you've got a line of 2 million people marching through the desert, there's these stragglers that end up at the very back. The people who are moving the slowest, maybe they're crippled, maybe they're hurt, maybe they're sick, uh, maybe they're really pregnant, whatever it is, but they're moving slow. Well, this nation of the Amalekites would come and would attack that rear portion of their column and either kidnap, steal or kill everybody that was there before the rest of the military could respond and to stop them. And they did this to Israel. And God remembered this and even gave them 400 years to become different people in this process. But at this point, he says, it's time for justice to happen. It's a crazy hard thing to understand, but that's what's going on here. That's what Saul has been sent out to do. And so he does that. Now, he doesn't complain about that. He doesn't seem to think that this is a big deal or a crazy idea at all. In fact, it's really interesting just to look from a standpoint of history and human history of how often, what warfare looked like, and even this kind of idea of even genocide looked like. Um, while that's a relatively new term, you can see it all over the pages of history. Even, in, especially in the last century, we saw major acts of genocide. People seem very willing and easily talked into these kind of actions. Even in this, this new millennia, it's already happened around the world. And it's interesting. It's not a repulsive concept to us because as human beings, this is a repulsive concept. It's actually... It's actually because of who Jesus is himself. It's actually because of the good news of the gospel. It's actually because of that very love that Jesus comes and proclaims that changes what we think and what we understand about how valuable humanity actually is, how valuable people actually are, why that should be something that we would never want to see happen or do. And it's an amazing thing to understand that, that it's the very gospel itself that transitions us to look at that and question that and go like, wow. Why would that be the thing? So we may have to wrestle with that a little more. It's going to keep coming up as we go through Samuel. I promise you that. But Saul goes about this business and what God tells him to do. And he goes about it and he does it. But here's what happens. He goes and he kills all these people. But he takes the king captive and he takes back some of the best animals. And God comes to Samuel again and says, I am really, really disappointed and tired of Saul. So he sends Samuel to come find him again. And in verse 12, we pick this up. Early the next morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But the people told Samuel, Saul has gone to Carmel, where he has put up a monument in his own honor, and now he has gone down to Gilgal. 
So here's Samuel, who, by the way, is an old guy, big, long, white beard. I'm sure he's got, you know, longish white hair. He's walking around looking for Saul and his whole army because he's got this message from God. They're not where they're supposed to be. He's finding out that, that Saul went from this conquest and this destruction of the Amalekites. Now he's gone up to this mountain where he is, he's building a monument in his own honor. And here's the, kind of this, again, weird context for our minds in our day and age. But when the military went and fought in battles, it was to, to the victors go the spoils. I mean, that's kind of how you paid your army was, hey, if we win, you guys get to keep whatever you loot. But this was different. This was not a battle. This wasn't a normal war. This was actually God unleashing justice through them. And they weren't supposed to keep anything. They were supposed to destroy everything. There wasn't supposed to be any of the human elements or aspects. It was simply a mission that God wanted done by Saul. And now Saul comes back and he's off making or building this monument to himself. Now that is both a weird and fascinating thing, right? As human beings, we all want some recognition for our hard work. We all want recognition for our good ideas, right? We all want recognition for what we contribute to life, to teams, to families, or whatever it might be, relationships. That's not a bad thing. In fact, in 1 Samuel, it's really interesting. There's this great line out of 1 Samuel 2.30 where, where God himself says, those who honor me, I will honor. Like God isn't against people receiving honor. He actually wants to honor people. He's looking for people to honor. Uh, but he's looking for people who want to live his way, the right way, who will, who will follow, who are in that trajectory and that momentum and motion of going where God wants them to go, who are examining their hearts to see if that's God's heartbeat that's beating in there. And so now Samuel is on this path and this journey to come and find and catch up with Saul, and he eventually does after he's built this monument. And it says this in verse 13, When Samuel came to Saul, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. <laughs> I have obeyed the Lord's commands. I can just stop there for a minute. I, have you ever been in this position where maybe you're a boss or maybe you're a parent um, and you know you're going to have to have a little confrontation, right? You know somebody did something wrong and you know it and you know that, that pretty much they know it and they know why you're coming, right? I mean, it's one of those moments where you're like, this is all really clear. The instructions were pretty simple, right? And Samuel's coming up and I just love how Saul immediately responds. Like before Samuel can say anything, right? He gives him the old like, hey, may the Lord bless you greeting. You know, let me just throw some religious language in here. Let me kind of invoke God into the subject because I already know that I didn't do what's right. I mean, I already know this is going to be a conflict. There's, this is just, it's going to be a little bit of a mess. And right, he goes right there to like, let's try to turn this to God talk kind of a thing. He says, you know, may the Lord bless you. And he says, I have obeyed the Lord's commands, right? It's a bold statement. And here's Samuel who says, then why do I hear cattle mooing and sheep bleeding, right? I mean, he's in this camp of an army of tens of thousands of guys who have taken all of these these animals out of Amalek that were supposed to have been destroyed from the get-go and not taken at all. And Samuel's looking around and listening around going like, I hear a lot of cows for a guy who obeyed what God said. I hear a lot of sheep for a guy who obeyed what God said. Like, I'm hearing a whole lot of noise. Like, it sounds like I'm at a farm right now, and there shouldn't be any farm animals at all. And here's what Saul says. Here's his answer. He answered, the soldiers took them from the Amalekites. They saved the best sheep and cattle to offer as sacrifices to the Lord your God, but we destroyed all the other animals. He is saying, look, look, I know, I know we were supposed to kill everything, but we kind of figured out this way to improve on God's command. In fact, we're kind of tying in with what God wants, the kind of this whole religious life, this whole religious concept of sacrificing animals and worship to God. And so we kept the best, which is what God wants. God always wants the best. So we kept the best sheep. We kept the best cattle. And you know what? We're going to make this big sacrifice. It's going to be this big to-do. It's going to be pretty awesome, right? And, but just in case it's not totally awesome, 
you know, just so you know, it was the soldiers that chose this. It was all these troops because I told them they couldn't keep anything else. So they just kept this best stuff. And it's just, <laughs> it's this fascinating kind of picture. I mean, it's almost like saying if God were like, hey, I want you to go down to the local car dealership and I want you to destroy all the cars. All right, I want you to firebomb all the cars and be done with the whole thing. We're burning this place down. And we go down there and we're going to do it. And then we're like, but you know, we should probably keep that Hummer because that's a really nice Hummer. But we're only going to use it for church events. All right, we're only going to use it to transport the youth group around or deliver food to people that are in need. But we're going to grab that. And maybe that Corvette over there, like the Corvette and the Hummer. We're just going to keep those two things because we could use those for God. Like we're just going to improve on God's command. It's, it seems so practical. It seems so simple. Why wouldn't we just do that? And I, lo- I love this. I just, it just f- fascinates me. Here's Samuel. Samuel just says to Saul, <laughs> stop, like stop talking. Stop. Have you ever been in that position? I, if, you get, if you've had, I'm just going to say, if you've had teenagers in your life, you've been in this position, right? If you've been a boss with some difficult employees, you've been in this position. You've heard the excuses. You've started to hear the explanation. And all you can think of is like, this wasn't that complicated. This was meant to be really simple. Why are you making this more complicated? Why are you justifying? Why are you trying to talk me into your bad decisions? Right? Why do you, why, the more you talk, the deeper you're digging this hole. Samuel is like, stop, Saul, please stop, stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said. Right? And Saul just hears it and goes, okay, sure, sure, tell me. I'm sure it's going to be good. Right? After all, we're going to sacrifice all the best animals to him. But Samuel says, you know, once you didn't think much of yourself, but now you've become the leader of the tribes of Israel. The Lord appointed you to be king over Israel. Like there was once a time where you didn't think you were going to be big enough for this job, but God brought you into this place anyway. Totally gracious to you. And he sent you on a mission. He said, go and destroy those evil people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until all of them are dead. Why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you take the best things? Why did you do what the Lord said was wrong he just lays that out there like look this is clearly what god said to do why didn't you just obey why did you why did you let yourself get talked into why did you justify this these best things why would you do what god clearly said was wrong and and this is what again so insightful into me as a human being but human nature saul says but i did obey i did obey the lord I did what the Lord told me to do. I destroyed all the Amalekites and I brought back Agag, their king, which right there is a sentence you're like, okay, that's, that's, that should be contradictory, Saul, right? I mean, and it's so easy standing right here or sitting in our living rooms or watching this and thinking about Saul and going like, okay, come on, Saul, everybody can see this. And you've probably been in one of these conversations at some point in time in your life too, I'm guessing, where you listen to an argument or you're on one side of an argument going like, yeah, that argument is not going to hold up. But when you're in the midst of it, when you're in the emotion of it, when you're determined to justify why something that you want to do is a good idea, man, we just kind of keep digging and digging and digging away. And he goes on and says, look, the soldiers took the best sheep and cattle to sacrifice the Lord your God at Gilgal. Like, again, it, it, was, it was just this one guy that I saved, this king guy, and but the soldiers took the rest, but it's still for a good purpose. It's still to be used for God. I mean, we're going to dedicate it to God. I mean, we're going to commit it to him. We're still going to do this whole religious process and this tradition and this ritual. And, you know, it's kind of this bargain maybe a little bit with God. Like, hey, sure, you know, we'll keep some of this and then we can use it for this purpose. But, you know, that seems reasonable. And it's easy for those kind of things to seem reasonable, I think, to us. But Saul is just employing one of the oldest things in human life and in human nature, right? He is just jumping and, and, and jumping on the 
the train of blame. I mean, he is just going down this path of saying, look, but it's not really my fault, by the way. It's these soldiers, too. These are the guys that actually kept all the animals. I, I didn't want to, but we don't pay them. You know, we feed them, but we don't really pay them. And so we said you couldn't even keep any of the stuff. It was a really hard argument to make. So I just said, all right, you can keep the best, but we have to sacrifice it. And he's just doing that simple thing of saying, you know what, this is not my fault. He's just simply laying out, look, there's this whole, there's this whole, there's plenty of people to blame. There's blame to go around, and it's, it's this roadblock of blame. I mean, you've probably seen this. I'm sure you have that, that, you know, blame is wonderful when we want something to not change. When we're trying to simply say, look, I need to remove some of this pressure, some of this weight that's coming at me from my own actions, maybe, or responsibility. I just want to offload a little of it, because I don't need to pass all the blame, all the buck. Just a little bit is usually all it takes for us as human beings to say, like, look, it's not entirely my fault. Those guys are there, too, and there's thousands of them. We can blame all these people. There's a lot of blame to go around. But when you do that, when you land at that place of blame, you know what's amazing? Blame is a powerful thing because when nothing gets owned, nothing is learned. Right? As long as we're blaming, we're not in that posture of saying, like, okay, that was me. I could learn something from this. We're saying, like, oh, yeah, those guys. Well, I mean, they could probably learn something. Maybe I learned something about them, but I'm not learning anything about myself. And nothing gets fixed. No relationship gets fixed. I mean, blame has this way to come into everything from our work and our business relationships to our families and our homes and our marriages. Listen to a really interesting book that was just talking about marriage and relationships and conflict and, and talking about the power of blame. In fact, nothing, no relationship can get fixed as long as there is an attitude of blame with even one of the people in it. And this guy, the psychologist that was writing, was talking about how that, that the best way to actually fix any kind of conflict is for one party to begin with saying, I am going to look at this from my side and take 100% of the blame. I'm not necessarily communicating that. I'm just going to say I'm taking 100% of the ownership. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to say, this. you know what, I can fix this part of it. I can fix my part of it, and I'm going to lean into that. Because with blame, nothing changes, but with ownership, anything and everything can change if we're willing to lean into that and learn from it and to grow from it. And this is what Saul isn't doing because it's not just about human relationships. This is what he's doing in his relationship with God. He's blaming away any responsibility he has in his own following after what God has called him to be, the king of Israel, the leader, the first worshiper, if you will. And he is using blame to simply say, no, it's not my fault. So verse 22 says, Samuel answered him and said, What pleases the Lord more, burnt offerings and sacrifices or obedience to his voice? And it's almost like in case, you know, that question doesn't really settle right away in our minds really quickly of, you know, what pleases God more? I mean, he seems to really like burnt offerings and sacrifices, right? I mean, we think God likes all kinds of sacrifices that we might make for him, whether that's our time or we use some gift or we'll give him some of our money. I mean, it's, it's really easy to kind of justify to God and say, God, well, you know, if you'll just let me do this one thing, keep this habit, keep this one inappropriate relationship, right? Keep these hidden thoughts, actions, part of my past, whatever it might be, kind of safe, then I will give you more of something else, get more of my time, more of my money, more religiosity. I'll lead something. I'll serve something. But what Samuel is saying right here is, what does God really want more of? Does he want us just to be obedient, or does he want us to do these religious, traditional, ritualistic bargaining with God? He answers it just to make sure Saul gets it. He says, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. It's better to listen to God than to offer the fat of sheep. He's saying the point of the sacrificial system isn't so that we can say, hey, it's all right, God will forgive me. 
Same as it isn't the point of Jesus' cross and his crucifixion to say, it's okay, God will forgive me. I can just put my faith in him and confess. Saying God wants hearts that want to obey him, that want to follow him, that want to know him. That's why obedience is always going to be better than sacrifice. And to be honest, I always thought in Saul that he kind of he kind of was missing the whole letter of the law dynamic with this. He just didn't like pay attention to the details. But I think in reality, what Saul actually missed was the whole spirit of the law. He actually missed what God wanted from the get-go in terms of the heart behind this, behind his heart, his desire, where he's trying to lead Saul, where he's trying to lead this nation. And it's very easy for us to miss what God wants to do in our life. When God says something about, hey, I want your life to be pure. I want it to be sexually different from the rest of our culture around us. Hey, I want you to stay away from the abuse of a drug or alcohol or you know, pick your pick your poison, pick whatever it is, or to stay away from this attitude or these kind of words or speaking to people in this way or whatever comes naturally and easy to us, we so often can miss what God's heart behind the commands or the laws actually are. And we can easily miss that. And when we do miss that, it tends to be because we are operating under something else, some other reality that is very powerful in our life. It may be under the influence of pride. It might be under the influence of greed. It's possible even that it's under the influence of fear. And let's face it, we've talked a lot about worry in the last couple of weeks, which stress, anxiety, but ultimately it comes down to fear. These things are powerful in our lives. And honestly, to have these things in our life is to be human. I mean, pride is something that is there for each and every one of us. And, and pride isn't just the idea of, hey, I try to do a good job and take pride in my work. It means that attitude of arrogance. It's that attitude that says, like, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, God. I don't need to listen to you. This is my life, not actually the life that you've given me. And greed is just that I want what everybody else has, or I want more than what everybody else has, or I want what they have, but I don't want them to want it. You can call it greed or envy or jealousy, right? It's, it's these things that are in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives so often that can come out. And when we look at the world with that attitude, with those eyes, well, we often very much miss what God is trying to get us to. What we see is what it seems like he's trying to take away from us. And Saul is kind of in this place of his pride and his building a monument in honor to himself, and he's missing what God is simply trying to do and where God is really trying to lead him, the kind of person, the kind of worshiper, the kind of follower that God is trying to make him into. And, and we tend to fall into this just you know, by these verific, very little degrees. right? We justify our disobedience a little bit at a time. Most of us don't go way off of the reservation. We tend to just say, well, I'll follow God this much, but that seems like way too far. That seems you know, way too crazy. I can't go quite that far when it comes to following him. And that's kind of where Saul ends up. It's just like, well, I did almost everything right. So that seems like that should be good enough for God. But then Samuel jumps back in this and he says, look, disobedience is as bad as the sin of sorcery. Pride is as bad as the sin of worshiping idols, which I mean, that's his way of saying this doesn't really get any worse. This is, this is the big stuff that God says stay away from. Don't go down that path of astrology or reading stars or palms or trying to predict your future by power of spirits or other supernatural things potentially. Or this pride and this arrogance saying, I'm my own person. I'm going to do what I want to do. He says, this is, this is the kind of sin that is leading people away from actually knowing God and following him. And he says, you have rejected the Lord's command. Now he rejects you as king. He's saying, you keep going back to the same attitude. And so now God is saying, I don't want you as king. Now, as we follow the story along, you're going to see that doesn't mean that day it ends. Saul's going to remain king for quite a few years to lack of this. But he, what he is saying is there's not going to be a legacy. That this something's going to have to change. You're not going to be my king forever. 
He says, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has looked for the kind of man he wants. He has appointed him to rule his people because you haven't obeyed his command. He says, look, God is looking for the kind of man he wants. And that little phrase there is actually the phrase that he's looking for a man after his own heart. He's looking for someone who's their heart, their want, their willing, their desire, their want to be matches up with what God wants things to be like. Who says to God, God, I want to go the direction that you want to go. I want to be the type of person you want me to be that's not going to play that game of blame. In fact, it's really interesting as we get introduced to this character of David and we're going to see lots of flaws. What we don't see him do is we don't see him blame. We see him take a lot of responsibility usually very quickly, sometimes even before he makes the mistake, he gets it. He recognizes, no, this is going to end with guilt. This is going to end with blame. And he wants to be blameless before God. He's not ever going to be perfect. He's going to find himself falling into that same pit of pride at times. He's going to find himself falling into that same pit of greed at times. Right? He's going to find himself falling into, well, you just about you name it. He's going to fall into it. It's not that he's going to be perfect. God's not looking for people who are perfect because they don't exist. None of us are perfect. So to be a person after God's own heart doesn't mean for a second that all of your actions are perfect. That's not what he's talking about. That's not going to be David at all. And that's one of the hard things sometimes for us to understand or wrap our heads around. With the little and the first glimpse that we're going to see about David is simply this, that he is a person who pursues God and wants his heart to match up with what God's heart, what God's will, what God's desire is. Let's just take a look at this Psalm of David, Psalm 139, the last two verses. He ends it with this statement, this prayer. God, examine me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any bad thing in me. Lead me on the road to everlasting life. Look at that prayer. In fact, take this kind of to heart. Take this into your own prayer language for a moment. Just read this and think this and say this like this is your own prayer but god examine me god know my heart now we one, one sense can say of course god knows our heart but this invitation to say i want you to know my heart because i want you to show me my own heart i don't want to be deceived i don't want to justify myself i don't want to play a blame game i want you to to test me and know my anxious thoughts you know the worries that are in there the things that are leading me astray the things that i might be believing that aren't really going to be coming from you I want you to test me. I want you to, to test me so that I can get better, so that I can learn what is actually right and see if there is any bad thing in me. I mean, David is just flat out inviting God to make his own heart and mind and life transparent because he wants to be able to stand in front of God and be blameless. Now, he knows that that's going to require forgiveness. He knows that it's going to require God to be gracious to him. He knows that that's going to mean him leaning on the mercy and love of God. And the same is exactly the same for us. And we can look back to the cross and of Jesus and know that it's because of that cross that we can lean on that incredible love and mercy and forgiveness of God. But it's also awesome that we can take this kind of tip from David and say, you know where this starts? It starts with doing this for maybe the first time, but it starts living here. This place of every day saying, God, I really want you to examine my heart. I really want my heart to start to look like your heart. I really want it to start going where you want my heart to go. I want to want what you want. I want your will for my life. I want to be able to pray with an honest heart. God, let your will be done in my life. 
that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To lead me on the road to everlasting life. I mean, there's that one sense of, well, don't we all want life, everlasting life, indestructible life? That's what David is praying for. He's saying, this is the path and life I want to be on. I know it's not easy. It's not what I always naturally want. But ultimately, I know, God, that if I can align my heart with yours, I'm going to find the life that you created and wanted me to have. So let's just bow our heads for a moment and close our eyes. And let's just pray this prayer. And as we pray it and we make it our own, I would encourage you to make this a prayer this week because this is an introduction into what it looks like to become a man or woman after God's own heart. As you close your eyes, I'm going to read this one more time, and I would just encourage you to pray it in your own, in your own mind, in your own heart, and examine and invite God to come in and examine. But God, examine me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any bad thing in me. Lead me on the road to everlasting peace. Father God, we know that you see and know everything everything that's in us. We know that it's not your desire to come into our life merely to judge us, to be an angry judge in the sky somewhere, but that you sent your son to this earth to die on the cross for our sin, to demonstrate your love for us, to demonstrate how much you wanted us to be able to know you and to put your Holy Spirit in us to change our hearts, that our hearts can begin to match your heart as well. Jesus, we ask that this week, starting with today, that you would begin that change in our hearts, that we would become comfortable with being transparent before you, that you could lead us on the road to everlasting life. You guys, I hope you prayed that this morning, and I hope that God will lead you this week in that prayer. Hey, this time we want to transition and, and go back into worship, and we're going to lead into that with just a reminder uh, that that's part of what we do when we take an offering. And so Bayside, <laughs> we're going to take an offering. And as Kiana said earlier in the video, uh, amazing generosity has poured forth in this church. And it was so cool to be able to, to write a check for, for Leonard and, and uh, forge in uh, for $10,415 to see that need go out around the world to Christian brothers and sisters in some really, really horrible and difficult situations. So thank you so much for being a part of that and honestly celebrate that and just thank God that we can do these little things because uh, they mean so much. Uh, but let's take an offering. Let me pray for that right now. Father, thank you that we can give back to you. Thank you that we can uh, demonstrate the generosity that you've put in our heart. Thank you that you uh, are a God who is so gracious and so good that you set this example of your love and your grace to us. We give back now in your great name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, you guys, what an incredible uh, song to get to close out with, uh, to be reminded about being faultless to stand before the throne. I mean, it's all because of what Jesus has done for us. How huge is that? I hope that encourages you as you go forward into your day and your week. I just want to close with a couple final thoughts and reminders. Uh, one is something that we uh, are attached on at the end of this video for our children. If you are watching as a family, we have a children's ministry video that's going to follow, so make sure you stay tuned for that. It's going to be fun and, and really good. Also, uh, keep uh, marking on your calendars that June 11th prayer night. Uh, we're going to have a get-together, actually, just to get together and pray. But we want to pray about where our church is going, what the summer is going to look like, what reopening might mean. Uh, but it's going to be focused on really seeking after God and what he wants us to do and be as a church in these really quickly changing times right now. 
Guys, I hope you have a, a wonderful week and take Psalm 139 home with you. All right, you're already at home. Take it with you into your week. It is so good to be able to invite God into our hearts and lives and to keep examining them so that he can lead us on that road to everlasting life. You guys, have a great week. We'll see you soon.